wonderful to be with you today. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors on the team. And uh, if you'd like, you can grab your notes out of your handout. You'll see that we are continuing in a series called Faith Conversations. And the idea of having these conversations, they're conversations that have been taking place within the church community, uh, the, the, the band of Jesus followers inside of the church, outside of the church, and the communities where Jesus followers uh, live and, and you know, do their commerce and, and all that stuff. And, and so these are not new, these conversations that we're having. And not only that, but uh, the idea that we could maybe make some kind of a declarative statement and then kind of stamp that and never have the conversation again, that's also not a reality. Uh, they will continue to, to happen after that. And so what I would love to invite Overlake is just that we would it, ask God's grace over these conversations. That we would ask God's grace over our thought process as we kind of tackle these things. We'd ask God's grace over the conclusions that we come to. We'd ask God's grace over the actual conversations. Maybe when we're having a conversation with someone who doesn't see things the way that we see them or doesn't come to the same conclusions that we come to, that there's grace over it because that's especially when God's grace is needed. And the way that we love one another, that actually is the challenge that Jesus brings us as, as his followers. So that's where it really all takes place. And if you were here last week, you know that the topic that we tackle last week was the topic of the Bible. What is it that we do with the Bible? How do we understand it? How do we apply it? And if for whatever reason you were not able to, to participate last week, I do invite you, go online, uh, kind of track with that teaching. It's, it's really kind of one of those, oh, I get it. This is foundational for what it is that we're going after here as a church body, Overlake Christian Church. The, the way in which we interpret the scripture, if you want to write down this phrase and kind of mull on it, it's gospel-centric. How we understand the scripture, it's, it's very, um, you know, very focused and, and centered upon the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, specifically through the crucifixion and the resurrection. So that's how we view the scripture. And again, you can find that online, occ.org. Today we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about Jesus, and specifically what we want to do is we want to go after the unique person and nature of Jesus, the unique role that he fills, not only in terms of our own, uh, you know, the, this faith stream that we're in called Christianity, Jesus followership, but also how unique he is in terms of the pantheon of other religious teachers and leaders that the world has seen and, and why Jesus plays and fills a unique role there. And lastly, and kind of this is sort of the under bubbling question that happens is, is Jesus the only way. It's, it's, it's the question of exclusivity. Like, is Jesus the, the, the one way that this whole thing takes place, you know, in and through? And, and so we're really going to be tackling that. As a pastor, by the way, I feel like that's a question that keeps coming to me again and again and again. And I'm sure if you're a parent at some point, your children will ask you that question. In your workspaces, that's kind of a question that will come up. Just what do we do with this person of Jesus? And, by the way, the, the great thing is that Jesus himself addresses this issue. So it's, it's really helpful for us as followers of Jesus to know what it is that Jesus himself said about these questions. So let's just jump right in. If you're, if you're following along your outline, this is from John chapter 14, verse 6. If you have your Bibles, welcome to open them up. Uh, this is Jesus answering a question. He's talking with his disciples. He says this. 
I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So you just go ahead and kind of keep focusing on that for a moment. I'm the way, he says. I'm the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So these are Jesus' words about this issue. And, and I think that, um, I mean, absolutely, I believe these are Jesus' words. I believe he was sharing them because he wanted to be helpful. He wanted to clarify some things. But unfortunately, I believe that these words have been misunderstood and even misused throughout the centuries. Because what some people do is they, they look at that and then they view Jesus like um, the bouncer at a club door, right? And there's a long line of people waiting to get in. Jesus has his arms folded. And, or maybe you view Jesus like Gandalf in Lord of the Rings, you know, you shall not pass. And, and so we just, we see that or, or you know, it's the idea of Jesus as the gate saying, the only way you get in here is through over my dead body. Actually, that's kind of true, over my dead body and then the resurrected body of Jesus. But okay, but we, we sort of uh, misunderstand, we misuse, we misapply these words and we, 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 we see it and, and the, the, the connotations are all negative, right? The reverberations are all, um, they're, they're, they're off-putting. And so let's just kind of put it in context with other things that Jesus said. Not that they'll be less off-putting, but it'll give us context as to, okay, what's really going on with this truth that Jesus is revealing to us. And so there's a couple other things that we'll look at. These are from the scripture, John 10 and then John 14. Jesus is speaking and he's unveiling a theological reality that actually connects with the verse we just read. So in John 10, 30, he says, I and the Father are one. And if you want to circle a a word just to jump out of you, circle the word one. He's saying, God and myself, we are are one. We're we're not separate. We're not different. We're not, there's, there's no division here. It's one, right? We are one. God and I are one. The Father and I are one. Then he says in John 14, 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So he's saying, we are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We'll talk about that a little bit more as we go on. This idea of of connected and interconnectedness. So here now you go back to that first verse and Jesus is saying, no one comes to the Father except through me. Basically what he's saying is, with all of these verses in context, he's saying it's impossible to come to God without coming to me because there is no God without me, that I am God and, and, and God is me. And, and there's this Trinitarian reality that we, we talk about and, and the idea of God expressing himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. These are the language, the language uh, constructs that we use in English. And, and yet w- what we're talking about here is a, a singular, unified God. It's not three gods. It's not like Jesus preventing someone from coming. to He's saying, if you want to come to God, come to me because I am God. Amen. And there is no God outside of me because God and I are one. And then you look at the rest of it. So Jesus says, as God, I want you to know I am good. And I am love and I have goodness and I have love to pour out over you. So I invite you into the fullness of life and I invite you into the fullness of truth. And the way is not a direction or a philosophy, Jesus says. The way is me. 
In, John, in 1 John 2.23, we read, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So again, I want you to think about Trinity for a moment. Father, Son, and Spirit, all God, unified. So you can't have God without Jesus because there isn't God without Jesus. And if you have Jesus, you have God because Jesus is God. Now, I recognize as we talk about these things, you know, if, if you're already a follower of Jesus, then you've already wrestled these issues to the ground. And if you're just maybe checking this whole church thing out or just wondering what this whole Jesus followership looks like, uh, these things, you, you hear these kind of phrases, this idea of, of Jesus being God, and, and, and there's question there. L- listen, I just want you to, to know that this is really the crux of the whole thing. Right? This, there's a lot of great stuff we talk about at church, a lot of great things that we go after in terms of making things better in the world, but just understand that th- that's why it all centers on Jesus, because we've wrestled this issue to the ground. So this really is the crux of where it is that I would encourage you in your own faith journey. If you've got questions around, you know, all kinds of questions, great, but I would direct your questions here because it's the central question. Now, there are two phrases in the Bible that refer to Jesus and the unique role that he plays. One, he uses himself to refer to himself a lot. He, and you might want to write these down. The first phrase that's used quite a bit in the scriptures, Jesus uses it to refer to himself, is the phrase, son of man. And the phrase, son of man, what it means is it means embodying the fullness of. It means a tangible expression of all that is wonderful or the very best of. Um, Really that idea of fullness or embodiment. That's what son of means. So in this first century context, this was quite a common language use. It was quite a common title use or even a, a name use. For example, the name Barnabas, it means son of encouragement. And why it was given to Barnabas is because he was really good at encouragement. He was the embodiment of encouragement, the fullness of encouragement in human form. And so that's why he got the name Barnabas. And in the same way, Jesus refers to himself as the son of man saying, look, I'm trying to show you the, the very best, the pinnacle expression of kindness, the pinnacle expression of love for, you know, one another, the pinnacle expression of sacrifice, laying down one's life for one's friends. I'm trying to reveal to you all of this beauty, the very best of humanity, so that you can look at me and say, oh, that's what the journey should look like. Now, there's another phrase that the Bible uses to refer to Jesus, and it's the phrase, son of God. Now, I want you to see, what does son of God mean? We're not talking about a biological father to son. What we're talking about is the same thing as son of man, the fullness of, the embodiment of. It's that tangible expression of. You want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. You want to understand how God's heart works? Look at the motivations that Jesus reveals. You want to know what is the truth that God thinks it's important for us to know? Listen to the teaching of Jesus because he reveals these things, right? The fullness of the embodiment of God in human flesh. So let's take a look with that thought in mind. Let's take a look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and following. It says, the Son, so referring to Jesus, the Son is the image of the invisible God. 
Some of your scriptures say, they translate it, the, the visible image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his, what's this word? Fullness dwell in him. And you might want to circle that phrase again. The fullness of God embodied in a person, Jesus. I was talking to my friend Jessica this week, and she was sharing with me a part of her faith journey, how it is that she came to faith. And this next verse is one of those verses that really just resonated with her on her own journey. In Colossians 2, 9, it says, For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. Now, this picture of Jesus being fully God and fully man being the visible image of the invisible God, having the fullness of God dwelling in this human body, like, are these somewhat exclusive truth claims? The answer is yes, they are. They, they are. It's not that there are many pathways that all end up at the same place, many roads, and they all lead to the same destination. It's Jesus is saying, I, I'm not even pointing to a pathway. I am the pathway. This is Jesus saying, look, you can't come to God without me because there is no God out there without me because I am God. So I say all these things, and I know right off the bat, like, they, they sound exclusive, right? They, they, they sound like, like this, there's a narrowness to these truth claims. So let's spend some time unpacking some caveats around truth. And again, this would be like a, a philosophy kind of 101 or a theology 101, maybe your first class in seminary kind of a, a, a day today. So if you're filling in the blanks, the first caveat you need to understand is that everything is exclusive, Everything is somewhat exclusive. Every statement that is ever uttered by another human being is somewhat arrogant-ish. It's just how it works. This is, this is what's tr- uh, If there's uh, something that's true about a truth claim, it's that every single truth claim is exclusive. And it doesn't even matter how wide open the truth claim might be, underneath it, foundationally, there's an exclusive property to it. So let me, let me, I totally boggled your mind. Let me, let me, let me give you a couple of examples. First example on the screen, there are no absolutes, right? That sounds totally wide open. Like, there's no absolute, everything goes, you know, there are no absolutes. Next truth claim, all religions are the same. Now, again, it sounds so wide open. It's so, so like, oh, my gosh, everything's soft and squishy and warm and fuzzy. And uh. This is an exclusive kind of a truth claim. And if you look at both of these statements, what you see underneath the actual claim, which seems so wide open, you see a, a, an incredible amount of exclusiveness and narrowness. Basically, that which says, the unstated premise is, I know so much about the nature of the universe that if you think different than me, you're an idiot. 
There's an exclusiveness to it, right? Let me give you another one. There's a, there's a, a kind of a famous-ish uh, paradigm. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a picture of an agnostic view of spiritual truth. And you've probably seen this before. The agnostic view is that truth is like an elephant, and we are all like blind people. And so we're kind of able to touch just a little part of the elephant, and then we, we touch a little part of it, and then we think we know what the, what the truth is, but we only know a little part because we're blind, we can't see the whole thing. And so you've got a guy, you know, at the tail, and he's, he's like, oh, this, you know, the elephant is rope. And meanwhile, you're like, stay away from there. That's a dangerous part to be, you know, right there at the end. And, and then some guy's up on the ear, and he's touching the ear, and he's, oh, it's like a big fan. And somebody's touching the, the trunk, oh, it's like a snake or whatever it is. And, and, and so you think, oh, I get it. That, that's the, the, sort of the agnostic paradigm of, of spiritual reality. What's exclusive about that? Is that it's presented by the agnostic narrator who knows the big picture. And so the exclusive claim underneath it is, if you think you know anything about spiritual truth, you're really blind and don't see the big picture. I do, but you don't. Do you see how all of, all of these claims are going to be somewhat exclusive? And, and by the way, I just want to make this really, really clear. The follower of Jesus never claims to have all truth. Now, in fact, it's really a humble proposition that we make. We don't have all truth, but the truth that we do have is the truth that we are humbly receiving in the person of Jesus. The Apostle Paul actually writes about this really clearly. In 1 Corinthians 13, he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly. Right now, our, our, our perceptions are cloudy. We can't see all things clearly. He said, but then there will be a day when we stand before the Lord. Then we will see face to face. Now I know just in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. He's saying there will be a day when all truth will be absolutely available to us. We will stand before the Lord and we will understand all of the answers to all of the questions that we have in this lifetime. That will happen and it's not today, he's saying. But we do know some truth and specifically the truth that we do know is the person of Jesus. So that's the first caveat. Everything's exclusive. Second caveat is truth is found everywhere and all truth is God's truth. Truth can be found in everywhere, in all kinds of disciplines, through all kinds of teachers, all kinds of philosophies, many different theologies. And just know that wherever you find truth, that truth is God's truth. So you don't need to be fearful of truth. You open up a math book, you see it's filled with all kinds of truth, or a physics book, different sciences, many wise teachers and philosophies. Now, as a follower of Jesus, we believe that Jesus is this pinnacle revelation of God's truth and love. Remember, his own words, he, Jesus says, I am the truth. But we recognize that wherever truth is found, it's God's truth. And one of the problems, uh, the reason why I bring this up is because we don't educate our own children about this reality. We never talk about the fact that all truth is God's truth. No matter where you find truth, it's God's truth. And, and because we don't 
train them like this, because we don't help them understand this, then if they get into a, a junior year biology class in high school, or they go off their freshman year of college and they enter a philosophy class and they're, they're, they're exposed to different truth and different ways of, of viewing truth and, and then they come back, they want to reject everything that they've known is true because we never taught them that, know what, all truth is God's truth. In fact, a clearer way to write this, I had the first service do this, you might write this down. It's that God's truth has nothing to hide. God's truth has nothing to hide. I was trying to think, could you imagine God in heaven being afraid? Oh, I hope they don't figure out that E equals MC squared. Oh, I, I hope they never crack that code, you know. Like, of course not. Well, why? Because God's the one who created everything. God's the one who knows everything. All truth is God's truth. He's not afraid of us figuring out truth. Truth has nothing to hide. Unfortunately, there are times when the church gets on the wrong side of this equation and we try to, to make sure that people don't experience truth or, or aren't exposed to truth. And it creates a really interesting looking paradigm. It, very unfortunate. The church did this. You, you might know this. The church did this with Galileo. So just let me show you this. This is Galileo. He lived from 1564 to 1642. He attempted to promote the heliocentric theory that the earth moves around the sun in the 17th century. And he was tried by the Inquisition in Rome and found vehemently suspect of heresy. The sentence imposed did not include excommunication, but he was forced to abjure, curse, and detest those opinions and was placed under house arrest for the rest of his life. Only in 1965 did the Catholic Church revoke its condemnation of Galileo. So 300 years after his death, the church said, we forgive you. <laughs> now, let me ask you a question, and you can answer. Was Galileo right? <laughs> Same thing as last service. Let me ask it clearer. Does the earth rotate around the sun? Oh, there you are. Okay. All right. So we're together. Did the church need to be afraid? Did the church look foolish for being afraid of the earth rotating around the sun? Yeah. It's not a good look for us, friends. It's, it's not a good look for the church to fear truth. Why? Because God's truth has nothing to hide. God's not up there just be afraid that we're going to discover some new truth. He's, he's not. It's all true. He knows it. He made everything. There is no truth that God's afraid of. So the church should not be afraid of any truth. But when we are, and when we take the posture of fear, then we come across looking quite foolish, right? So we have to recognize all truth is God's truth. We have to teach our children all truth is God's truth. And not only is all truth God's truth, listen to this, but there are times that people outside of the stream of Jesus actually get aspects of his truth better than his followers, right? This ought, ought to stir up even greater humility among the followers of Jesus. Let me give you a couple of examples. It's often true that people in the way of Islam get concepts like reverence and commitment and personal discipline better than many Jesus followers. 
It's often true that people in the way of Buddhism get concepts like self-denial and sacrifice better than many Jesus followers. And so it's not only that, yes, there is some truth in all of the religions of the world, it's that many people in many other faith spectrums sometimes live a more Christian life than Jesus followers live. Now, Paul is one of our models in this. What he does is he recognizes that all truth is God's truth and that actually truth found in other disciplines or other faith spectrums is a great jumping off place to be able to talk to people about the truth revealed in Jesus. And so as you read through the book of Acts and you look at how he interacted with people in different communities, you read through Acts chapter 17 and you see what he did when he was in Athens. And he began to try to connect with the people in Athens who are very educated. There's a lot of philosophy that was being discussed all the time there. And so he made a decision that he was going to use the truth found in their own pagan teachings and in their own poets. And he was going to use those places that the truth was found in these other streams. And he was going to use that as a way to talk about the truth of God. So this is what we see in Acts chapter 17, verse 27 to 29. Paul's talking about God, and he says, yet he, he's talking about God, yet God is actually not far from each one of us, for, and this, he's going to quote a pagan philosopher, in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring or his children. Being then God's offspring, we ought not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men. So what he's doing is he's trying to drive home a point that God cannot be like one of these idols that's all around the city, right? He, 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 there's no way that God could be this little stone or this little statue. That's, that, that can't be the case. And then what he uses to argue his point is these pagan teachers and, and poets, He's saying, look, even your own teachers say this, that in him, in God, we live and move and have our beings. And that's true. And, and even your own poets say, we are his children, his offspring. And that's true. So if we're the offspring of God and we have our being in God, how in the world could God be this little statue? Right? And, he, and so he uses their, their own truth in order to point them to a clear picture of God's truth. And it's a beautiful thing, and it's something that we need to be more and more aware of in terms of our conversations as well. So, to, to sum up so far, yes, it all centers on the person of Jesus, right? And it's, it's so unified that it's unified in this person of Jesus. But, number one, everything is exclusive. Number two, all truth is God's truth. The caveat number three is this, that Jesus is the most inclusive Savior there is. He's the most inclusive savior there is. And actually, and you might want to write this down, he is the only savior there is. And I say this, and I, even as I say it, I know some of you hear this in a narrow or an arrogant way. I'm not saying it in a narrow or arrogant way. I do believe that he's the only savior there is. But I have studied comparative world religions. I, I know all, not, not in depth, but I know about all of the major faith streams that humanity has ever put forth. And I know this, that Jesus is the only savior in all of them. 
That, that in, in Buddhism, there's an eightfold path, and it's, it's a noble path, and there's many things, you know, there's value in that eightfold path, but there is no savior in that path. There's no salvation in that path. I know that in Islam, there's five pillars, and, and they're good pillars, and there's some nobility around uh, a life that's practiced and discipline around these pillars, but, but there's no savior in that. There's no salvation mentioned in that. I know that in Eastern mysticism, there's this enlightenment and there's this, um, you know, sense of transcendence. But again, there's, there's no salvation in it. There's no savior in that pathway. The, the idea of, of a savior very uniquely mentioned, like the Dalai Lama, for example, he, he pitches love and hope and peace and forgiveness and in doing so communicates an incredible amount of Jesus, but he's not the savior. And as far as I understand it, he doesn't even pretend to be the savior. So when I say that, that Jesus is the only Savior, he's the only Savior that, that's, you know, the only one who's come forward and said, I will save you. I will save your soul. I will forgive your sin. Right. Now, Jesus is um, incredibly inclusive. And, and, and to, to point to a verse, we talked about this last week. I want to I delve into it a little bit more today. Colossians 1.20 says this. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus. We looked at that. And look what the purpose thereof, right? Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So the, the purpose of the fullness of God dwelling in the human body in Jesus is for reconciliation and not just for reconciliation of some things or some people, but reconciliation of all things. You might want to circle that. Reconciliation of all things. And then he goes on to clarify things on earth or in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. In other words, the blood of Jesus shed, the crucifixion and the resurrection, reconciles all things to God. It signals that the separation and the reign of sin is now over because through Jesus, all things in heaven and on earth, all people in all countries, all tribes, all ethnicities, all languages are the target of his love. And through the, the cross, nothing less than every molecule in the entire universe is now redeemed, cleansed, and made right with God because peace has been accomplished through Jesus. Let me uh, continue. Yes, it's rather exclusive in that we point to Jesus. But through Jesus, nobody is excluded. Everyone is invited. Nobody is left out. He loves everyone he, he invites. He invites everyone he loves. And that is everyone everywhere through all time. Right? The way that we describe his love is unconditional. And it's unending. It's everlasting. And what this means, friends, is that I don't care what country you were born into. Jesus loves you. And I don't care what color your skin is. Jesus loves you. I don't care what holidays you celebrate. Jesus loves you. I don't care what religion you've identified with. Jesus loves you. I don't care what lifestyle you've led. Jesus loves you. His love is absolutely, completely, and totally available for you right now, right where you are, right who you are. So, friends, let's say yes to his love today. And there is this incredibly relational aspect to our faith. 
And we talk about this quite a bit at Overlake. You know, to be a Jesus follower, it's not just that you ascribe to a set of creedal beliefs. It's not just like, I check off these 10 faith assertions. It's, it's incredibly relational. It's entering into a relationship with Jesus. Jesus is a living Lord. He is a risen Redeemer, and we enter into a relationship with Him. What begins that relationship on our end is just our faith in Him, our trust in Him. Jesus, we trust you. And as we place our trust in Him, then this relationship of love begins, and we walk with Him, and so we receive His love. We receive His cleansing. We receive His care. We receive His presence. We're able to have joy and hope no matter what's going on in this lifetime. And when this life is over, we enter into a more full, manifested relationship where we are in His presence for all of eternity. That's the relational aspect of our faith. A buddy of mine got a call late one night, and it was from a friend of his so a few years ago. And his friend was distraught because he was sitting at the bedside of his mom, who was in hospice, and she did not have much more time to live. And, and, and there were many conversations that they were able to have in that space, but, but he didn't know how to have a faith conversation with his mom. And, and so there was, there, there was just some anxiety around that. And, and so my friend just gave him a little coaching, helped him see what an incredible honor it is to just be present with someone as they finish the journey of this life and enter into the afterlife. There's, there's an incredible amount of dignity and care. In fact, friends, I would just offer this to you. It's not so much what we say in those moments. It's just our presence that communicates our care and our love. 90% of helping is just showing up in those moments. And so he just, you know, encouraged him, just be with her, hold her hand, communicate your love to her. And then, and then he, he, he said, and, and why don't you just pick one of your favorite Bible verses? Why don't you, why don't you pick something that is just, has, has made an, a difference in your life? And just share that with her and maybe have a conversation about it, maybe not. But just ask her, hey, mom, do you care if I pray for you right now? Can I just spend this time praying over you? And, and so he did. He, he took her hand and he sat by her bedside and he said, mom, can I just share with you one of my favorite verses? And she said, sure. It was John 3.16. It was for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then he asked her a few questions about that and about what she believed. They kind of just talked about that for a while. And then he said, Mom, can I pray, for, can I pray for, with you? And, and she said, yeah, I'd love that. And so they prayed together. And it just happened to be on the last night of her life. You know, and I share that. I just want you to see that, yeah, it's all located in a person of Jesus, but in the person of Jesus, his arms are wide open. And the invitation is wide open, and there is no one anywhere, there's no one who has ever lived who is outside of the scope of his love. In 1995, a movie came out, and I know many of you probably have seen this movie. It was... It was a movie called Dead Man Walking. And I was dating my wife at the time, so we went to this movie on a date night. And it was the worst date night ever. 
<laughs> you just, it was like three hours of emotional pounding. Like we came out of there, our eyes were red and puffy from crying. We were raw. We immediately got into a fight. Uh, <laughs> I can't believe she still married me like after that date. It was just was a beautiful picture of God's grace. But if you haven't seen the movie, I'll, I'll, I'll just bring you up to speed real quick. It's, it, there's a, Sean Penn is the actor, uh, and his character is thoroughly un, unlikable. It's based on a true story. The character that he plays is Matthew Ponsolet, and he's just heart-wrenching in his inability to feel, to interact with others, or to treat others respectfully. He comes from this broken upbringing, poverty, his own choices have made him into a monster of a human being. And as the movie starts, He's waiting on death row. The other main character is Sister Prajean, and uh, she's played by Susan Sarandon. She's a real-life nun who works with him and tries to get a stay on his execution. And over the course of the whole thing, just attempts to simply love him like Jesus would. And the whole time, this guy is just a piece of work. He, he constantly denies that he needs to be forgiven for anything. He denies that he's guilty of the crimes with which he's been charged. He's proud. He's horrible. It is such a heartbreaking movie from every angle. It's just gut-wrenching. And at the end of the movie, it's, it's time. The execution's been scheduled for midnight. And, and he's about to be led from his jail cell to the execution chamber. He is the dead man walking in the title. But right then, right at the end, he has one honest conversation with Sister Prejean. And he tells her that he's been lying to her, that he is guilty, that he was there. He did the rape. He pulled the trigger, double murder. He's guilty of these crimes and many more. He said he confessed and prayed to the Lord. And in that moment of honesty, he told her that he also prayed for the victims and for the families of the victims. What he did in that moment, even though his uneducated brain didn't have the words to frame it, is he stopped taking faith in his posturing. He stopped putting trust in his bravado in the legal system. And instead, he put his trust in Jesus. And it's the emotional climax of the film where he says to her, thank you for loving me. And Sister Prejean says, you are a son of God. And Ponsolette says, thank you. I've never been called a son of God before. I've been called a son of a you-know-what plenty of times, but I've never been called a son of God. Now let me ask you, Where else is there a place for the likes of him? No religion wants that guy. Atheists and secular humanists distance themselves quickly from that kind of a soiled life. Pathways that focus on external behavior and the, the appearance of holiness shun him. Even philosophies that seek to embrace forgiveness dole it out by the teaspoon, and that guy needs an ocean of it. And in the void, Jesus steps forward. And Jesus says, I love you. 
I want you. I died for you. I will forgive you. And I will cleanse you. And I will welcome you into my arms. Right? I will welcome you in, in this eternal home. And, and Jesus is there for the Matthew Ponsolettes. And he's there for the Mike Howertons. And he's there for you. And he's there for every single person you have ever put eyes on. He is the most inclusive Savior there is. It's amazing to me. It's amazing to me that God, the fullness of God in a human form, comes to live a humble life. To not put on airs, to not make it about him, but to just give his life, an incredible life of service and of love, of healing and of help. And at the end of this life, at the end of this life of sacrifice and ministry, he gives his life on the cross. He says, I'll take it on me. Every single thing, every stain of sin, every hurt you've ever caused, every hurt you've caused yourself, everything you've ever felt ashamed about. I will take it all on me. I I will put it on myself and I will pay the penalty for your sin so that you can be forgiven and you can be cleansed and you can be righteous and you can be with me. You can be with God, not only in this life, but forever and ever. And there's still so much more, and there's so much more joy that's available now in him, and so much hope that's available in him. There's so much strength and courage and empowerment, the fullness of life that he comes to invite us into. All of this is wrapped up in this relationship that we have, this relationship of trust that we can have in Jesus. And so, yes, it's exclusive in that it's absolutely centered upon Jesus, but it's exclusive in the sense that everybody's invited His arms are wide. He wants to wrap all of us in. And you might be the kind of person who has it pretty much together in your life. And you might have a lot of things going well for you. You might kind of have this life wired. And if that's you, I think that's wonderful. It's probably untrue. But if that's you, if you think that, (laughs) that's great. And you're welcome. And you're welcome. And, and, and Jesus, you know, the church is not for good people, but good people are welcome, right? Like good, good people. It's not our goodness that saves us. It's his goodness that saves us. But good people are welcome. And the fact is, when we come in, not only does he save us, right, but then he offers us a life of goodness. So, so the goodness is not something that makes us holy to God, makes us acceptable to God. But when we come to God, now we receive a life of goodness. So yeah, there's a life of kindness that we're invited to, a life of generosity we're invited into, a life of making things better in the world and making things better in our neighborhoods, our communities, building homes built on love and God's truth, like all of these things. There's so much wonderful purpose that's available for us as we come to him. And so if maybe that's you. You feel like you've got it all together. And, and I'd say, come and let Jesus save you and be a part of this beautiful stream. But maybe you're the kind of person who doesn't feel like you have anything together. You can't get your finances together. Your kids are a mess. You don't even understand yourself and all your mixed motives. And 
You end up doing things you hate. You, just, you, you can't figure it out. And if that's you, he loves you so much. He loves you so much. And I would just invite you to come today. I'd invite you to just wrap your arms around Jesus today. Hear his whisper of love to you today. You're why I came. I came for you. I love you. I want to invite you in. Hey, let's just start this, this journey together. So why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes. And just remember that there's literally no one anywhere ever who is not embraced and loved by Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, once again, I... I just feel like I have to start by confessing how frustrating it is to not be able to communicate your goodness, to, to fail at communicating your incredible, unconditional, and everlasting love for us. So Jesus, I just humbly ask that you would communicate it that you would communicate to every heart. Holy Spirit, that you would wrap up every person here, every person listening, that you'd wrap your arms of love around them and that you would help them to see that you are present. You're the God who came near and that you're the Savior. You're the most inclusive Savior. You're the only Savior there is. And I just pray that for each and every person that we could all take a step forward today in faith a step forward today in our understanding. Maybe there's people here who have never stepped across the line of faith and said, yes, Jesus, I trust you. Would you please let them take that step today? Lord, we love you. We are so thankful for the way in which you have pursued us in love. We thank you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Amen.